This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Thank you, Bishop Stewart. It's just lovely to be here. The, the very first time I ever met Bishop Stewart, uh, his words to me were quite unforgettable. He proceeded to tell me how much he disliked me. <laughs> and I thought, this is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. <laughs> he, he was joking, but he has a whole spiel about me and maybe my eccentricity or something and uh, how that strikes a person, first of all. And so uh, he said, came to our whole church and told this whole story and, and, and it didn't endeared him to everybody, and he, he was with us in May, and so you have to understand there's something going on between our group of churches in Canada and this diocese here. There is a, a similitude of spirit that is uh, har hard to explain in, in any other way than providential, that's that something that God has purpose to. And so when we had our large gatherings, uh, annual gatherings this last year, I felt the Lord tell me, like, because uh, I had been the teacher and, and, and the kind of leader of the movement, but you need to invite someone who has the same passions. They need to hear the same truths coming out of someone else's mouth. And so we invited uh, Bishop Stewart, and um, he just preached his heart out, and people were amazed with this is all the stuff we love, and that we believe they're very touched and very wonderfully bonded uh, to him. And they enjoyed watching him and I, because when you're carving out a movement by yourself, it's kind of you and all kinds of people, but they hadn't seen me have a peer. And that gave rise to all kinds of jokes. They said, well, we know why you're going to Chicago. It's a bishop's play date. <laughs> we'll drop you off and pick you up in a few hours. Hope you have fun. And so I, I, it's, it's given rise to all kinds of uh, crazy things. So I'm here enjoying my bishop's play date for a few days. Amen. And uh, my movement will pick me up and deliver me safely home on Tuesday. But it was really important to reciprocate, so I brought as many as we could bring, I think we had six or eight, um, who, who was kind of um, a first allotment of people from Via Apostolica that could come here. And, and so the rector of our cathedral, you'll hear from him later, stood up and said, this is like family. I wasn't nervous speaking. These, these, these are people who are, who are just like us. And so I'm afraid you, you might be stuck with us. Um, we're probably going to be a little bit bad, like a bad spring cold. We're not going to go away easily. Um, but you will be in our hearts. And we feel a deep um, inclination to serve what you and what God has put before you. And so uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of each other. I'd like to turn our attention to the gospel reading this morning. Uh, it was found in the gospel of St. Luke. I know it was read out to you, but, uh, but if you have your Bibles, paper or electronically, um, could I please inconvenience you with turning to that? Luke chapter 7. Verses 36 through 50. This wonderful story opens with Jesus being invited 
to dine at the house of a Pharisee whose, whose name is, is later divulged, it's Simon. Judaism was, of course, one faith, but it consisted of several subsets, one of which was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the strictest of the sects, and they were known for a lot of things, but kindness probably wasn't one of them. You know, graciousness wasn't one of them. Nobody ever said to a, uh, you know, to a, to a Pharisee, you're, you're just loving me too much. The second verse, verse 37, speaks about a woman of that city. She is nameless. She is simply referred to throughout the passage as a sinner. When she hears that Jesus is nearby, that he is in this house, she makes her way to the Pharisee's house. Twice she's described as a sinner. We're not told exactly what her sin is, but there are certainly hints in the passage that tell us what it is. So she's probably a prostitute, an adulteress, but most certainly some kind of sexual immorality is involved here. But again, what is most noticeable from the start is that she isn't named anywhere in the story. She is simply called a sinner. And there is an enormous sadness to this because she was known by her community only by her past mistakes. As soon as she enters the house, she's recognized, to be sure. But the only thing that people know about her or care to know about her are the unfortunate things from her past. This man is a Pharisee. He is versed in the Holy Scriptures, but he has no good news for her. He's a man that would claim to know God. He's a man that would claim to speak for God and to represent God, but he is completely without a gospel. He's got no good news. There's no sense of, well, this is what your life used to look like, but it could look a lot better with the Lord involved. There's no gospel there. In his opinion, in all of his company, but Jesus, this is what she's done. She'll always be that, and we will never think of her in any other way. Dare we ask what that would have felt like for her entering the house that day? I think it would have felt like there's no getting away from my past. Like she was permanently marked, even marred, like her past was inescapable, that it was irreversible. I've done something in my past, and now my community have typecast me as that. They've even forgotten my name. The only thing that seems to care to this village is the sin of my past, and I'll never be able to get away from that. Therefore, the remarkable courage that it would have taken for this dear woman to have entered any house in her community but a Pharisee's house and to go there uninvited because she would have surely known the, the reception that she was about to receive. And yet, this heroic woman, and she is that, is willing 
to risk it all and to face the most unsafe, hostile social circumstances possible, and all because she has one determined goal in mind. And it is not the goal that you'd probably think. What would cause you to risk everything? What would cause you to enter into a place where you're thought of in the, in the worst possible terms? This woman has one goal and one goal alone in mind. Everything she did that this day was to that end. And it was this. She had something that was of utmost value to her that she wanted to go and give to Jesus. She wasn't there that day to get something. She was there because she was desperate to give something. This is the first thing about this woman that has made her something of a hero in my eyes. I come into Jesus' presence even on the best days, thinking, well, this is going to be awesome. He's got a lot for me. I'll bet I could really receive some great things from him today. And there's nothing wrong with that. But she comes into his presence driven to give him something. Imagine if we'd come to church like that today. We woke up and said, there, there's nothing I would rather do than be in the presence of Jesus. I've got to go be where Jesus is today. And there's no sports match. There's no family reunion. There, 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 there's, there's nothing that could detract from that. I've just got to go and be where Jesus is today. And I've got to find the, the thing in my life that matters most to me. The thing that is of greatest value, I've got to go in, I've got to just give that to him. I've got to go lay that at his feet. That is worship. Right there, that's the heart of worship. Yeah. Above songs, or any other thing we could do, it's when we do that in song that makes it worship. Scripture says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster is a soft stone, and it's used to make vessels for perfume. The ointment within was an expensive perfumed oil. Doesn't in Luke's gospel give us a sense of how much that might cost her, but in a parallel story in Mark, there's another woman with an alabaster flask of perfumed oil, and it says that it was worth 300 denarii. So a denarii is a day's wages for a laborer. So 300 denarii, that's a lot of denarii. That's, a, that's an almost entire year's wage. So do the translation. Your job, what's an entire year's wage?
It's all our money. And she is driven. Like, you can't stop her from doing this. She's facing absolutely hostile circumstances, very unwelcome, and she just has to go be where Jesus is, and there's this thing that is just burning inside of her. This means the world to me, but now I've met someone who means the world to me. So now this doesn't mean what it used to mean to me. He now means what this used to mean. So I want to go give him the thing that matters most to me to the one that now matters most to me. It sounds like this was her entire life savings, her nest egg. But when she met the Savior, that life savings no longer needed to be her Savior, the Savior of her future. She felt so secure with Jesus, so welcome, so wanted, so loved, so looked out for, that this sum of money no longer provided her with the security that it used to. And so now whenever I go to public worship, I go with this woman in the back of my mind, and I ask myself, at this time of life, Todd, what is your alabaster flask? What's the thing that really has a lot of value to me? And I don't have a lot of time to talk about my story, but in my journey with God, he has worked with me in blocks of time, which have inevitably ended up in 12 years. Literally, some of them, not by my design, were 12 years to the day. And those 12-year periods have have involved a, a fair amount of pain and hardship. And so now when I go into his presence, I take the most recent one. I said, Lord, for the last 12 years, you've called me to do some things, and there was significant cost attached to that for me. And so I'm going to come into your presence, and that's my alabaster flask. I'm going to give you 12 years of my life. That's something that matters to me. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of mornings. That's a lot of evenings. That's a big chunk of my life. And I've had several of them. And so I go in, and I said, that's my alabaster flask. I'm going to give you this last 12 really tough years, and I'm going to worship you. I'm going to say, you called me to that. You were worth it. Because worship, the heart of worship, is saying you are worth it. What's your alabaster flask? Not what used to be your alabaster flask. What is your alabaster flask right now at this time of life? The thing that's really costly and very meaningful to you. Well, this dear woman knew what it was to her. A little life savings that she had hidden away. And she meets Jesus, and the effect that he has on her, it changes her entire internal system of values and priorities, how she thought, what she thought was important of life. Everything shifts inside of here. And she's got to go and give that to him. When she comes into the house, 
She finds that in ancient Near Eastern style, tradition, that Jesus is reclined at a table. Which means he's probably propped up on his elbow or on a pillow alongside a low table with his feet sticking out behind him. And this woman, she's just got to be where Jesus is. She comes in and just stands and says nothing, just stands behind his feet. She's, that's all she goes, just proximity. She's not asking for something, she just has to be close. But she stands there weeping. This is the second thing I really admire about this woman. I'm going to tell you why I admire it. Some suggest she was weeping out of joy, some out of sorrow, regret for the past, some because she's so overwhelmed with love. But whatever the case, she is simply overcome with emotions in Jesus' presence. As we'll see later in the story, there's no doubt Simon, the host, is looking at her thinking, uh, it's, I got a woman in my house. I've got a woman who's a sinner in my house, and now she's come in uninvited, and now she's all emotional. Why is she so moved? And Simon is asking altogether the wrong question. The question isn't why is she so moved? The question is, why is everyone else so jolly unmoved? Why is everyone else so unaffected? They all get the same privilege. They all get to be in the presence of Jesus. And there's only one woman who understands what a proper heart response to that privilege should look like. Amen. Everyone, they don't get it. Why are, why are they so unaffected? They're like granite. I don't want to be like them. I want to be like her. Because she allows her deep heart to be deeply affected by Jesus. Her deep places. To be altogether open to him. Even when her heart had been so trampled underfoot in life. Look at this woman's story. What it was, what it is. How would she ever open that heart again? And yet she did. For most of us, when we have suffered and pain, rejection, at some level we think, I'm not, I'm never opening my heart to anybody again. When we suffer rejection, we close our hearts 
to people because we are not going to give people a chance to repeat that. But when we close our hearts to people, it inevitably gets closed to God too. When we have been shamed like she was shamed, we don't just hide the worst parts of ourselves away, we hide the best parts, we hide all parts of ourselves. When we feel disappointed, then we refuse to put it out there, to, to risk vulnerability again. We're going to play it safe now for the rest of our lives and try to lead as much of a risk-free existence as we can because we got burned the last time we did it. We got burned financially. We got burnt relationally, emotionally. But not so with this dear woman. I have no idea how she went through what she went through in life, and yet before Jesus, she is an open book. She just trusts him so much. And and she wanted him into those places that had been so devastated. She could not afford to keep him out of those places. And she worshipped him from those broken places. Worship is the place where we open our deep selves to God. Not just where we're physically present, it's a great starting point, but the kind of how some of the best parts of us are disconnected, hidden away. Worship is a place where we, like this woman, have to be where Jesus is. We have to be where he's gathering people. And when we're there, we have to open the deep places of ourselves and give him those deep places, make them accessible to him. That is worship. And so how are you doing? When you come to worship, it takes some discipline and decision to open the most precious parts of you to him. But when you do that, and when you think he's worth it, you are touching on true worship. Notice that she wept so much that her tears fell on Jesus' feet. This was spontaneous. It wasn't planned. She didn't pack a towel with her that day. And so she improvises on the spot. And she wipes his feet with her hair. With her hair. 1 Corinthians 11 says that a woman's hair is her glory. So she's taking her glory something glorious about her. 
and doing something very inglorious with it. Acting as a servant, washing her tears off Jesus' feet. It was the custom in first century Judaism to wash the feet of an honored guest. However, even in those instances, it wasn't the host himself that would wash and dry their feet. He would have a lowly servant do it on his behalf, in proxy. This woman is not going to let some proxy do this. And she doesn't care if everybody just thinks she's a servant. She's the lowest standing already. And so she just takes her hair, the most glorious part of her. In fact, this is probably the hair that may have got her in trouble in the first place, that helped her to allure men. This it means this is a converted person. The thing about herself that used to bring her into sin is now the very thing that brings her into worship. Her, she's not using this to allure a man in a wrongful way. She's using this to wipe her tears off Jesus' feet and to worship him. And so there's an important question to ask is, what is your glory? What has Jesus given you that's glorious about you? Someone, someone would say, I, I got a, a great mind. I, God's given me. Then good. Are you using it to get low? And to wash the tears off Jesus' feet with that great mind? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I seem to be able to put my mind. I can start a great business. I think that's just so wonderful. It's even glorious. Are you using that glory to worship? Are you using it to get low and to wash Jesus' feet with? Whatever Jesus has given you, and it may take some time to, to put your finger on that. What's glorious about you? I, I, I'm a good friend to people. That's awesome. Go make friends for Jesus. I'm pretty musical. Good, good go use it in worship. What has he given you? How did he make you glorious? There's worship to be had in those places. At this point, the Pharisee reaches kind of boiling point. This sinner comes into his house an undesirable. She wasn't even invited. Then she's got to get all emotional. And now, instead of him feeling honored, Jesus is taking this humble woman and honoring her in the midst. <laughs> so he just finally just kind of blows. And inside, he starts to get judgmental. Ah, uh, I don't know. I used to think this Jesus was something, but... I'm not sure I think so anymore. If he was really a prophet, he would do what prophets do. He'd throw stones at her. He'd know what manner of woman this is, and he would feel indignation against her like I do. If this man really represented God, if he really represented God, he's the son of God. Simon had no idea how far he was out. 
the grotesque misrepresentation of God that he represented. And so he wants Jesus to use his prophetic ability and turn it on this woman. And instead, Jesus prophetically reads him, literally knows what's happening in his mind. And so I'm very careful judging people, because I know the Lord will, might turn that on me. Will do. And so in the gentlest of ways, Jesus says this, Simon, when I entered your house, you know that it's customary treatment for an honored guest to do certain things. When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't even think I was an honored guest. You didn't think it was an honor to have me in your house. You wouldn't even assign a lowly servant to come and do that for me. And this woman has done it herself. With her tears. You couldn't even spare a bit of water on me. Simon, when I came into your house, you gave me no kiss. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. And, and that's, that's not a kiss of, with romantic intent. It's actually a rarely used word in the New Testament, but the other instance where that particular word kiss is used is in the story of the prodigal son. When the son returns and his father is so overcome with joy and he welcomes him with a kiss. That's the word that's used here. She feels like in loving Jesus, she has come home. And she's welcoming him with all the joy that the prodigal father welcomed the prodigal son back. She's welcoming him. He says, you didn't show me any sign of affection. You didn't make me feel welcome. You just judged me in your mind. When I came, you didn't anoint my head with oil as per our custom. You wouldn't even anoint my oil with, with, it says the word for oil here is like, it's just cooking oil. Like the most inexpensive form of oil, you wouldn't do this. And she took the most costly perfume imaginable and poured it all out on me. You wouldn't even give me the cheap stuff. You see why she's like a hero to me? I've had lots of heroes through my Christian life. John Wesley, George Whitfield, St. Columba, St. Patrick, the list goes on and on. This woman is now one of the figures that has kind of went to the top of the list, an unlikely person, because I want to worship like her, and I want to treat Jesus' presence like she treats it. And a church that will treat Jesus' presence like this the whole world will, will hear, hear of it. Because if you can train yourself to treat the presence of Jesus like the most meaningful thing in your life, 
if you can roll out the red carpet for his presence, if you can, if you can put everything aside because I've got to be in his presence, and I'm going to give the deepest, best parts of myself as gifts to him when I get into his presence. And I'm going to, to, to open up the deep places of me, and sometimes that's even going to involve tears. I'm going to, on his feet, and I'm going to wipe it with the most glorious parts of myself. I'm going to become a servant. I'm just going to do this for him. I'm going to show affection. If you can make Jesus feel like his presence is that wanted and that honored in your midst and in your own hearts, in your homes, you will know a presence that is otherwise hard to know this side of heaven. And so before we, as we proceed with the Eucharist, where the very presence of Jesus will come. How will we receive his presence? As we honor it, as we welcome it, as we open the deep places to his presence, you better buckle up. As I've done that more in life, I've known so much of his glory untold tales of encountering his presence. And God willing, we'll see more and more because we want to be like this dear woman. Would you bow your head in prayer, please? Simple prayer. Lord, this story is a story of contrast. I don't want to be like Simon in the presence of Jesus, but cold to it, closed, unaffected. And full of judgment to people whose hearts are open. Unwelcoming. I want to be like this woman who's a sinner like me. Like me. I want your presence to be the very center of my life. I want to orbit around it. And I want to treat your presence like gold. Precious. Lord, as we come to the Holy Eucharist, where your presence will be to us, in the bread and the wine, at the holy table of the Lord, let me treat your presence with desire. and great honor and welcome. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.